Good morning, everybody. Please take a seat and turn in your Bible to Psalm 51. And as you're turning there, uh, forgive me for um, failing to announce that if you came prepared to give this morning, I'll invite you just to go ahead and slip it in the back in the uh, offering uh, depository in the rear of the sanctuary. And uh, we would be grateful for that. But now it is time in our worship service to turn our attention to the exposition of the Word of God. For the past ten weeks, we've been in a series in the selected Psalms. And today, as I've mentioned earlier, we will wrap up the series with a three-part exposition of one of the most theologically rich passages in all of Scripture. If I had to pick one psalm, that has had the most profound and life-changing effect in my life, I'd hands down pick Psalm 51. Because it deals with an essential matter. Godly repentance. Psalm 51 is all about true, godly repentance. Repentance is one of two necessary components of genuine saving faith. The other being, of course... Faith alone and Christ alone. Jesus preached in Luke 5:32, "I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Paul preached in Acts 20 verses 20 to 21, "I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist preached, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So it's plain to see from a simple, brief survey of the Bible that saving faith and godly repentance go hand in hand. Both involve a cognitive action And both are necessary if a sinner is going to be saved from the wrath to come, as Paul puts in 1 Thessalonians 1. Both are purely a gift. God gives it to you. You don't earn it and you don't conjure it up yourself. However, I think that's clear. I'm sure you've heard what I've just said delivered in some way before, but after we have believed in Jesus and repented from our former manner of life and put on the new man, is there still repenting to be done? That's the question. Even after we're saved, do we still need to repent? Yes. Of course, the historical context and theological content of Psalm 51 reveals the answer to be yes. Now, before we break down David's prayer in Psalm 51, I need to draw your attention to the superscription or title, as it's called. Because as you may recall from previous expositions, it is found in the Hebrew Bible. 
And in fact, if you were to look at Psalm 51 in the Hebrew Bible, this title is assigned as verses 1 and 2. Which means you would find 22 total verses in the Hebrew Bible as opposed to 19. Look what it says. It says, for the choir director. Note the preposition for. It reveals the liturgical assignment. Who it's written for. Meaning how the psalm is to be used. It wasn't written to him per se. It was written for him to be used in the liturgical gathering. Now what does that imply? It implies that this song was meant to be sung publicly. Now think about that for a second. In this psalm, which you'll see, David pours out his heart after having committed atrocious sin. So it would be like you sitting down after having been exposed of grievous sin and writing a song about it, giving it to Daniel and say, Daniel, let's sing this in church. That's what David has done here. It's a psalm of David, which reveals the author. He was the king of Israel, the son of Jesse. And so we don't have to guess or argue about who wrote it. But the latter section of the superscription demands somewhat of a lengthy explanation so that we get the context right. Because it discloses the historical backdrop of all what David has written in Psalm 51. Look what it says. When Nathan the prophet came to him, David, after he had gone into Bathsheba, Now, this is meant to lead our minds back to a significant turning point in Israel's history. A time when one man's sin triggered a severe domino effect in the king's house and began a long, dramatic end of an era. So in order to get on the same page, go ahead and turn the page back to 2 Samuel 11. Just keep your thumb at Psalm 51. 2 Samuel 11, King David, as you know, was a man after God's own heart. And it's, it's encouraging for me to know that my kids were just learning about this in the, in the first hour. David was God's choice after Saul, the first king of Israel, failed. David was a true believer, and he demonstrated time and time again that he really loved Yahweh. Under David's rule, Israel became the most prosperous and powerful in their history. They were feared and respected by the known world, and they were very rich. Life was good under David's rule, both politically and materially, until David sinned. He didn't just make a small mistake, nor was he found guilty of a common oversight. He sinned egregiously and grossly in a moment of dire weakness. He fell and he fell hard. Remember the story? We read about this in 2 Samuel 11. 
And then we read about the expose of the sin in 2 Samuel 12. At the height of David's kingly glory, the scripture records that he stayed home from war when everyone else went out to battle. First mistake. He should have gone with them. He had no business hanging out at home. So, I guess with nothing else better to do, apparently, he got out of bed one morning and went for a stroll on the roof of the king's house. I guess that's what you do when you're a king and you're bored. You go walk around on your rooftop. On the rooftop, he saw a woman bathing. And according to 1 Samuel 11, verse 2, notice it says, The woman was very beautiful in appearance. Temptation. Verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. Second mistake. He should have just looked away, shouldn't he have? He should have just went about his business, but he didn't. What did he do? He sent for her, and verse 4 says that he lay with her. She becomes pregnant. And then David freaks out. He tries to conceal it by dispatching Bathsheba's husband to return home from battle for some R&R. But Uriah, being a man of integrity and honor, refused to go to bed with his wife because his countrymen were out fighting for his freedom. So then David ups the ante. He purposefully orders Uriah to be stationed on the front lines of war where he would likely be killed in action, and that's exactly what happened. And so let's recap so far, okay? He coveted his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. He tried to cover his sin, which is really bearing false witness. And he murdered an innocent man. How should we think of David's sin? Well, we shouldn't think of it as perhaps a seeker-sensitive liberal might think and say, you know, David just had a really bad day. He's made some mistakes. He's human, and God understands that once in a while we make a bad decision. Is that how we should think of David's sin? Some might, but if we take the word of God at face value... We must think of David's sin as God does. Look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 27. It says, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil. Do you think of sin as evil? Do you think of your sin as evil? It's something to meditate on. And to me, the most shocking thing about this whole episode is this. He seemed to have thought he could get away with it. But if we turn to 2 Samuel 12, go ahead and do that. What we find is that Yahweh was not going to let him get away with it, was he? 
through the mouth of Nathan the prophet, God harshly confronts him and indicts him for his wrongdoing, leveling a list of criminal charges against him. I want to read 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 15. Follow along with me. I want to make sure that we get a crystal clear picture before we jump into Psalm 51. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. Red hot fuming mad is the literal Hebrew. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Wow. Simply for taking a little lamb, the king says, Let him die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and had no compassion. Now get this. this. This is the part that gives me goosebumps. David said, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. This is the same guy the scripture says was a man after God's own heart. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you for your own household, and I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your son 
you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Now pay close attention to David's response to this divine confrontation. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice this response to this law-breaking is not blame-shifting. It's not downplaying. It's not excuse-making. He didn't say, Nathan, you're not speaking to me with a loving, gentle tone right now, uh, so I'm not going to listen. His response was godly repentance. Psalm 51 was written in a response to the bold and blunt yet caring and truthful and shepherdly confrontation we read about in 2 Samuel 12, 1-15. Now let's read Psalm 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken... Rejoice, hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. 
psalm can be divided into five parts, each revealing a distinct facet of true godly repentance. You need to understand these facets so that you can, number one, discern the difference between remorse and repentance. The difference between remorse and repentance. And number two, so you can be reconciled to God after you sin. We need to be aware and reminded of God's way to be restored to him on his terms. Because as we've already agreed upon, you must repent and be restored in fellowship with God when you sin. And here's what that involves. First, the first facet of godly repentance must be a plea for divine pity. Verse 1. When you sin and the Spirit convicts you to repent, plea for divine pity. Or grace. Because they mean the same thing. Christianity is the only grace-based religion. Every other religion or cult is based on human effort. But the true religion is wholly dependent on God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Look at verse 1. It says, Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. It seems it just means to have mercy, to take pity, or to be shown compassion. David is begging for God's gen- gen- generous mercy. He's making an urgent supplication for acquittal. He's humbly requesting undeserved favor from his gracious God. But it begs this question. On what basis or grounds does David find the audacity to ask for clemency after having committed such atrocious acts of treason? I mean, if I... I, sinned against you in this way? If I had someone who you love killed, would, would, I, would it be easy for me to find the audacity to go to you and ask for grace? No. We don't, we don't do that. We don't give grace. We want to get back at people. We don't show compassion when we're wronged. But God does. This appeal for grace is based on the very nature of God. Look at what David prays next in verse 1. He says, Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. Loving kindness. Now, let's camp out here for a second. This is a very special Hebrew word translated hesed. Transliterated, rather. And it generally... uh, describes not simply warm feelings of emotion, but acts of service given to another simply because he is part of the covenant community. The uniqueness of this word is evident in how varying translations render it. The NASB, which is what I'm preaching from, and the New King King James Version, and the King James Version, say loving kindness. The NIV and NLT renders it unfailing love. The ESV renders it steadfast love. 
But listen to what the Holman says. Faithful love. And the Net Bible, the New English translation, says loyal love. Now, it seems to me that the best way for us English speakers to understand this word as precisely and accurately as possible is to take it as loyal or faithful love. One commentator said that hesed is love and loyalty all rolled up into one ball. However, there is no exact English equivalent, so we can't be too dogmatic about it either way. But the main thing I want you to get is this. In the context of hesed, In the context of God's hesed towards sinful man, this word refers to God's faithful action towards those whom he has entered into a covenant with. In other words, when we read about God's hesed in the Old Testament, what should come to mind is his unchanging, unconditional loyalty to his elect. And that should really just bleed out of this other page of Scripture. This is, this is one area where we are not like God. We are not loyal people by nature. We're fickle. Oftentimes our love has conditions. And when we enter into a covenant relationship with people, a church, a local church, it's so easy for people just to bail. But God does not bail. God is by nature immutable. He's by nature love. So God does not abandon his people. You heard Psalm 23 preached recently. David declared that Yahweh's goodness and hesed will pursue him all the days of his life. In other words, God's loyal love is forever. Here in Psalm 51 and Psalm 23, David is absolutely convinced that instead of the covenant curse he deserves, you know when you pray for grace, you're implying that you know you deserve something else. He's convinced that the Lord's faithful love will hunt him down relentlessly because God, again, is by nature love and immutable. And so we can trust that God's mercy and his grace extended to penitent sinners will never fade. Never fade. Now notice David's second prayer request in the second line of verse 1. It says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice the, the form of the word transgressions. It's got an S on the end of it. It's plural. David knew that he was culpable for many rebellious acts, not just one. And it's vital to understand that the meaning of transgression, which is derived from a separate Hebrew word for sin, Sin, as you've heard before, if you've been in church for more than a, a week, you've probably heard that it means to miss the mark, right? You've heard that before? Sin means to miss the goal or miss the mark. Baptist preachers love to say that. 
But Baptist preachers fail at, at, at describing transgression. It's going to get at the heart of your sin more by understanding this. Transgression means to breach the relationship between two parties. It can be refer it can refer to military uprisings, you know, like a private would rebel against the general, severing that relationship to function as it's intended to. Or it can refer to citizens rebelling against their king. For example, in 1 Kings 12:19, the context of the divided kingdom after David, we read, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Rebellion, transgression, same word. So understand then that transgression carries the idea of uprising or rebellion. So when you sin, you are not just simply missing the goal. You are rebelling against the God you say you love. David realized that his wrong was rank rebellion. That's what transgression means. Sin is more than just missing the mark. It's going on strike against God. It's protesting against God. It's saying, God, you're not my rightful king. And by covenant, which followed by sexual sin, which followed by deceit, which ended in murder, David had been engaged in personal uprising against God. And so it's noteworthy to consider again that those were the crimes that David is speaking of. It's also noteworthy to consider that he earnestly begged God for mercy, for grace, and for compassion. They're synonyms. Another way to describe grace and compassion and mercy is pity. The clearest biblical illustration for grace and pity and mercy is the story of the Good Samaritan. All religious people just passed by the guy that was left for dead. But the guy who was moved with compassion, with grace, with mercy, was the one who didn't just say, Brother, I'll pray for you. Let me pray over you. Wish you well. He carried and carried him and he took him to the hospital. That's compassion. That's real compassion. And that's what David is praying for. So in our repentance, we should follow David's example. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of the need to repent of whatever sin, whether it's small or big in your eyes, consider the reality that you likely have more than one major sin to be blotted out. Now what does it mean to have your sins blotted out? Well, the Hebrew word for that means to obliterate from the memory. So David is praying that Yahweh would be moved with such pity that his sins will be forgotten and not be counted against him. And that's precisely what God does when a repentant sinner prays that prayer. In Isaiah 43:25 it says, "I even I am the one who wipes out or blots out your transgressions, your rebellion for my own sake." 
and I will not remember your sins. So the idea here is that God does not keep a record of sins which could be used against us in a court of law. You know, when a criminal appears before a court, what is usually the first item on the agenda after the judge enters the room? Picture that. He sits down on the bench, he looks at the defendant, and he says, Mr. So-and-so, you've been charged with murder, assault, theft, robbery, and perjury. How do you plead? And then the bad guy gives his plea. Right? Well, now picture the judge coming into his bench, sitting down in that big leather chair. He picks up a piece of paper and he's ready to read the charges against the defendant and the piece of paper is blank. There's nothing on it. And since he's he's looking at a blank piece of paper, he has no recollection of why the defendant is there in the first place. So he says, what what are we doing here? Case dismissed. We're adjourned. Leave. There's no memory. There's no record. So there's nothing to be charged against the defendant. That's what repentance is like for us. Isn't that great news? That in God's mercy and compassion, he no longer counts our sin against us if we plea for his pity. That's the first facet of godly repentance. When you repent, plea for pity. The second facet of godly repentance is this. A plea for spiritual cleansing. A plea for spiritual cleansing versus 2 and 7. We all know that sin makes us unclean. That's nothing new, spiritually speaking. And just as we seek after soap and water to clean our hands of dirt and grime, so we need to seek out cleansing from the filth of sin. David prays in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. In the second line of verse 7, Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, friends, this is a prayer of a true believer. Have you ever prayed this prayer before? True believers like David know that their sin defiles them and that they need to be spiritually bathed. David is obviously using figures of speech here in verses 7 and 2. He's clearly not talking about literal water because it cannot take away sin. Just like baptism cannot remove sin. David isn't wanting to partake in some empty ritual here. He's praying for God to wash away and cleanse him of the stain of sin in his life. Now, I'll explain how that happens in a moment. But first, drop back down to verse 7 which goes a little deeper into the desire for spiritual cleansing. It says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Now, that word hyssop, that's strange, isn't it? That deserves a little bit of uh, an explanation of the background. In the Old Testament, priests used hyssop, which was a leafy plant, to sprinkle blood or water on an unclean person, to ceremonially cleanse him or her 
from physical defilements such as leprosy, childbirth, or touching of a dead body. Ladies, I don't know why childbirth is in that mix, but I didn't write the book. If you had a child during uh, this time um, in the Mosaic Covenant, you had to go through a ceremonial uh, cleansing process. The idea here is that the unclean person meant that the person was not permitted to enter the holy place. Whatever was deemed unclean was incompatible with the holiness and perfection of the Lord. Therefore, the unclean man or woman had to be ceremonially purified. This is an example. I'm going on a limb and I'm going to assume that most of us don't spend too much time in Leviticus, right? So, I want to read a portion of Leviticus that really informs what David is saying here. In Leviticus 14, it prescribes the process of purifying a leper with hyssop. So listen to the process. It's very fascinating. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out to the outside of the camp. Thus the priest shall look, and if the infection of leprosy has been healed in the leper, then the priest shall give orders to take two live clean birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and hyssop for the one who is to be cleansed. The priest shall also give orders to to slay one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. As for the live bird, You shall take it together with the cedar wood and the scarlet string and the hyssop and shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slain over the running water. You guys track with me? He then will sprinkle seven times the one who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let let the live bird go free over the open field. The one who is to be cleansed shall... Then wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe in water, and he will be clean. And now afterward he may enter the camp, but he shall stay outside the tent for seven days. Wow. So the hyssop, as we read in Psalm 51, played a key role in the old covenant process of being physically clean. But David's not talking about being physically washed, is he? Hyssop is a figure here of David's longing. He views himself as a spiritual leper. And he's praying for God to cleanse him in the same way that the leper was cleansed, only spiritually. He's longing to be cleansed from his moral defilement. Because he was spiritually sick. Just like the water sprinkled with the hyssop couldn't cleanse the soul. Blood from a bird couldn't do anything. Can't remove the sin of guilt, guilt of sin. There's really only one way to be washed, to be cleaned and purified spiritually. You know what that way is? Forgiveness. 
David is praying for the God of loving kindness to forgive him. The only way to be cleaned is for God to forgive the sinner. Because in forgiveness, God washes away the sin. And that's what David is praying for. So brother or sister, when was the last time you prayed this prayer? When was the last time you prayed for God to wash you? To cleanse you? To forgive you? For your transgressions, plural. Because it's not often. Believe me when I say that I love you enough to admonish you. You must repent from not repenting when you should. May you leave this place this morning meditating on the evil nature of your own personal sin. May you leave this place with the knowledge of the need to repent in prayer, petitioning to our living benevolent Father for pity and spiritual cleansing. Those are the first two facets of true, godly, genuine repentance which we all need to partake of regularly. The second, or excuse me, the fourth, third, fourth, and fifth facet be covered next week and the week after. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you that we can be forgiven. Lord, may you be gracious to us according to your hesed, according to your loyal love. May you forgive us of our sin. Wash us. Give us a sensitive conscience and give us the conviction of, through the Spirit so we can glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.